Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. As many of you have experienced, the birth of a baby is an exciting time for all involved. It is eagerly anticipated by both mom and dad and the extended family. And we've had several new babies in our church family recently and several more ready to make their appearance in the coming days. When that happens, we always put the birth details on our prayer list. That is, we send out that daily prayer list and on there we put the fact that a birth within our church family has occurred. We, of course, give the name of the new baby. We give the name of the parents. If the grandparents attend church here, we give those names as well. And then we give just the barest of details, usually the time of birth or day of birth, and, of course, the height and weight. Not sure why we always want to know the height and weight, but we do. Other than that, we don't really give any more details. Some details are, are just too personal. We, we know in our society we're just not supposed to ask certain things when it comes to birth. How long were you in labor? Did it hurt? I'm just kidding. I know it hurts. You've told me that before. So, Did you have a natural delivery or was it a C-section? Did you go for the epidural or... Did you not use any drugs at all? These types of questions are really none of our business. And so we don't ask them. All we really want to know is that the baby has arrived and that all involved are healthy. Well, that might be your attitude this morning to the topic that we are looking at. As you have already heard, we're starting Christmas early. Jake has already reminded us of Operation Christmas Child. He's encouraged you about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. There are only three months until Christmas, and therefore we have got to get going. Hopefully, some of you have already got your shopping done. And so we are talking about Christmas this morning, the birth of Jesus in this series on doctrines that define. But we are going to be looking at a particular aspect of this story, not all of the details we like to talk about at Christmas. We are not going to journey with the family to Bethlehem. We are not going to peer into the stable and see the scene. There will be no talk today of the visit of the wise men and the gifts which they brought. Instead, we will be looking at the specific method of conception and birth what we historically call the virgin birth of Christ. And here is where you might be tempted to ask, and in asking, give me my title. Does it matter? Does the virgin birth of Christ really matter? Now, I'm not saying does the birth of Christ matter. We'll acknowledge that. But what I'm saying is, does the manner and method, specifically what we call the virgin birth, really matter in our lives? With all that's going on, and we talked about some of that last week, with all of the problems internationally, nationally, and in our personal lives, does it really make a difference in what manner Jesus Christ was born. 
Furthermore, in a series of doctrines that we're saying rise to the level of these are the things that must be believed in order to be an Orthodox Christian, should the virgin birth really be a part of that series? Of all the ones we're going to look at, my guess is going to be this is the one you're going to question the most. Not question as to whether or not it actually occurred, but question as to whether it belongs in this series at all. But the point I want to make this morning is that this particular doctrine is significantly important. And if we deny it, it's a short step to denying very many, many other very important things as well. I know we might be tempted to think that it really doesn't make much difference let seminary students talk about this. Let theologians debate the, the fine lines about what did or did not happen here. But we need more practical advice for daily living. Now, I do want to acknowledge that there is a slight difference between denying something post-conversion and acknowledging something as in an affirmation before we can be converted. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is you do not have to believe in the virgin birth prior to salvation. This is not something that I'm saying must be included in your affirmations before you're genuinely saved or something that we must add now to our evangelistic efforts. In other words, I'm not saying that next time you share the gospel that you've got to include the virgin birth and make sure they understand it. But what I am saying is post-conversion, once you come to understand that the Bible does teach the virgin birth, if you deny that, then we've got serious problems. So you may not affirm the virgin birth prior to salvation, but if you deny it sometime after salvation, having come to understand what the Bible says about it, then you can be assured that your orthodox Christianity is indeed on shaky ground. So I'm not going to spend our time this morning trying to prove to you the fact of the virgin birth. There's not a whole lot I can do there other than to say that the Bible says it, and I am going to say that. But what I am going to do, hopefully, is try to show us that this indeed does really matter. This is significant when it comes to our relationship with Christ and all that that entails. So we are in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Beginning in verse 26, these are familiar verses to you, maybe just not at the end of September. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. He was of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, I'm going to begin this morning where I suspect you would imagine I'm going to begin. And I'm going to simply say that this matters because Scripture records the virgin birth. At least three times in this text, the word virgin is used. One of those on the lips of Mary herself. And she of all people ought to know the fact of this matter. Now, I remind you that we began this series two weeks ago with the authority of Scripture under the title, Has God Said? And we did that for a reason. We said that that must be number one because everything else we're going to talk about is anchored in the Word of God. And if we do not believe that God has spoken in His Word, then nothing else we say in this series is really going to matter. On the other hand, if we do believe that God has spoken, then everything He says does, in fact, matter. And He says very clearly here that His Son, Jesus Christ, is going to be born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, every birth, of course, is a miracle, but none like the birth of Jesus. Ironically, one of the objections to belief in the virgin birth is the, the reality that is not found a lot in Scripture. There are only two places in the New Testament where we hear anything about the virgin birth, obviously in Luke's gospel that we've just read, and in the parallel message of Matthew's gospel. Those are the only two places in the New Testament. Mark and John say nothing about the virgin birth, but to be fair, Mark and John don't give a birth narrative at all. The only other place in Scripture that we find anything about the virgin birth is in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy of the sign, the child being born of a virgin. And Matthew, in his version, picks up on that and says that Jesus is the fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah. Those are the only three places in all of the Bible that say anything about the virgin birth. Paul never says a word about it in all of his letters. The sermons in the book of Acts that we've been studying on Wednesday nights recently, they never once mention the virgin birth. Nowhere else is it found, leading many people to say that if it were such a vital issue, we would expect that we would find it in more places, and yet we don't. Well, I could turn that around and say, well, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true and for us to believe it? Or we could say we understand that most of the New Testament, the epistles, were written as letters to deal with issues going on in the church. And perhaps Paul didn't mention it because it wasn't an issue, because it was believed by the bulk of the people and it was not up for debate and therefore Paul never mentions it. Uh, so just because it's only found a couple of times in the New Testament does not undermine what we are saying this morning. This is the bottom line. Scripture clearly portrays this as the manner of Jesus' birth. Therefore, if we deny the virgin birth, we are denying the truth of Scripture. And again, from week one, we said, if we start denying certain aspects of Scripture, then we are placing ourselves as the authority over Scripture rather than the other way around. 
And it's simply a short step then to decide what we want to believe and what we want to cast out. A step that we hopefully do not want to take. I know I don't, and I hope you don't either. And invariably, those who deny the virgin birth will go on to deny much of the rest of the New Testament. But it's not just that Scripture uses the word virgin here to refer to Mary. Notice the response of the angel to Mary's question about how this could be possible. In verse 35, it is the Holy Spirit that will come upon her. It is the power of Almighty God that will bring this about. So that it says there that this child will be called Holy, the Son of God. If I might jump ahead just a few moments to the last sermon that we're going to do in this series, we see the Trinity here in action, in the conception and birth of Christ. The Most High refers to God the Father. That's made very plain in verse 32 where it says the child will be called His Son. So when it says the Most High, we're talking about God the Father. It is God the Holy Spirit who is empowering Mary to conceive and to give birth. And it is, of course, God the Son to whom she gives birth. So we see all three members of the Trinity here being involved in this miraculous moment. So Scripture is very plain in calling this an act of the Trinitarian God. And therefore, if we deny this, we are clearly on dangerous grounds. So does the virgin birth matter? Absolutely, because what we believe about Scripture is at stake. I mean, the only other options that we have, since this is clearly recorded in Scripture, the only other option we have are these. Luke is writing a fantasy novel, or Mary was immoral and lied about it, or both. Those are the only other options. So I tend to want to go with the fact that Scripture reveals it, and therefore we are to believe it. The second thing I want to say this morning about whether or not this matters is that the Savior believed in the virgin birth. We have used this logic before. If Jesus believes something and we are followers of him, then we ought to believe what he believes. And we ought not to believe less than what he believes. And so I want to set out to show you that Jesus himself believed in his own virgin birth. Now, before we get there, we've already noticed that Mary believed this truth, and of all people involved, she is in the best position to know the truth. Therefore, when told that she was going to bear a son, we do not see what we would expect from a young woman here. There is not excitement. There is not anticipation. There is instead doubt. When she gets the news of her pregnancy, she does not act like other young women act. We know that she is not yet married, though she is engaged, and the engagement in that culture was a very committed thing. But she knew for a fact that she had not been with a man, and therefore her response is doubt. How can this be? It's impossible. Now, she doesn't laugh like Sarah of old did when told she would bear a son at nearly 100 years old. She doesn't laugh, but she certainly does doubt. Likewise, Joseph has every reason to doubt. Because in Joseph's mind, there is only one other option. Mary has been unfaithful to him during this period of engagement. And although they were officially not married, even a breach in the engagement period of this caliber 
meant it was time for a separation, which was actually called a divorce. And so Joseph, the Bible tells us, being a righteous man, was willing to put her aside quietly. In other words, he didn't want to bring any more shame or embarrassment upon her than she was already going to deal with. That was what Joseph was going to do until he got a visit from an angel as well, explaining the situation to him. Matthew gives us this part of the story, and he does so rather matter-of-factly. Joseph awakes from his sleep. During his sleep, he has received a visit from the angel, and when he awakes, he simply does as the angel command. He moves forward with the marriage in spite of her pregnancy and does not know her in the sense of sexual relations until after the birth of Jesus. And therefore, Joseph believed what he was told by the angel and knew that Mary was a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. I realize that Catholic theologians believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, meaning that she never went on to know Joseph or have children, but we're not Catholic, we're Protestants, and we believe that Mary did have other children. In fact, the Bible records the names of the brothers of Jesus and mentions that he had sisters, though it does not name them. So we see here that not only did Joseph and Mary know what was going on, but we have hints in the rest of the New Testament that others thought there was something unorthodox about this birth. There were rumors going around about Joseph and Mary. If you've ever been in a small town or a small church, you know how rumors can spread quickly and wildly. In John chapter 8, Jesus is once again engaged in a heated discussion with some other Jews. They claim Abraham as their father, as all Jews did. But Jesus said to them, I don't think Abraham's your father because you're not acting like him because you want to kill me. And in this dialogue, they eventually say to Jesus, we are not the ones born of sexual immorality. In other words, they were accusing him of being born in that manner and they themselves were not. There was another occasion in his hometown while he was in the synagogue teaching and the crowds were astonished at what he had to say. And in their wonder and astonishment, they said among themselves, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? You say, what's significant about that? Well, there's no mention of Joseph. It's the odd way in which that is worded that is striking here. Because in that culture, a man was always known as the son of his father, not the son of his mother. But here we see the son of Mary. But you say, I titled this the fact that the Savior believed in the virgin birth. And so far, all you've talked to me about is Mary and Joseph and some rumors going around town. So how do we know that Jesus believed in the virgin birth? Well, for one thing, he made sweeping claims about who he is and was during his life and ministry. He said, I and the Father are one, clearly claiming equality with God. He said to the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in perhaps one of his greatest and most sweeping statements in John chapter 8, that same dialogue I mentioned just a moment ago with the Jews, He said at the conclusion of that dialogue, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming eternality. He was claiming to be God, to to have deity, something no ordinary birth could account for. But perhaps more telling than any of this 
is every time Jesus referred to his father, he was always referring to God the Father, not Joseph. Joseph is never mentioned in Scripture as the father of Jesus. And if we were to go further in the Gospel of Luke that we read this morning, you see Mary's famous song. She goes and she meets Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, and then Mary bursts out in this song of praise that goes for quite a number of verses here in Luke chapter 2. And not once is Joseph mentioned in all of that song of praise. When Jesus made the famous statement, in my father's house are many mansions, he wasn't talking about the carpenter shop and maybe a a few bedrooms over the shop. He was talking about God the Father and he was talking about heaven. Most believe that Joseph was dead by this time because he's not mentioned during the public ministry of Jesus and because on the cross, Jesus looked at John and said for him to take care of his mother. Speaking of the cross, It was there that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Again, do you believe for a second that when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, that he was thinking about Joseph? No, he was thinking about God the Father. And while Jesus obeyed Joseph as he was growing up, as the Bible tells all children to do when it comes to their parents, he knew that his real father abided in heaven. And so the Savior knew that Joseph was not his father, but God was and is. And if he was mistaken about that, then he is clearly illegitimate. And if he was mistaken about the identity of him and his father, then he surely would have been mistaken about a host of other things as well, including his deity, as we've already seen. His purpose in coming, his death, his resurrection, and on and on it goes. If Jesus missed it on the virgin birth then everything else is suspect as well. So the doctrine of the birth of Christ matters because what follows rises and falls on this virgin birth. The third thing I want you to understand this morning is that the supernatural confirms the virgin birth. Now that's just an awkward way of saying it in order to keep it parallel like we have to do in sermons, but it's an awkward way of saying that this is a supernatural event that defies the normal course of things. And again, if we deny this, we will begin to deny the other miracles as well. We will begin to deny the other supernatural activity of God in the normal course of life. And this is exactly what happens with people who begin to question the virgin birth. If they doubt the virgin birth, then they begin to doubt the other miracles of Jesus as well, ultimately including the resurrection. So it is a very short step to denying the virgin birth of Christmas to where we get to the empty tomb at Easter. And this gets at the very heart of who God is and what he's capable of doing. Look at verse 37 again. Verse 37 says very clearly, that nothing is impossible with God. Now, is that true or is it not true? I mean, those are the only two options there. If God is all-powerful and can do anything, then why would we doubt the miracle of the virgin birth? I well remember a roommate that I had in college for multiple years. I think we lived together for about three years. He believed in a lot of the facts of Orthodox Christianity. If you took him to the life and ministry of Jesus, he had no problem affirming the vast majority of that. But he did not believe in the miraculous. He did not acknowledge the supernatural. And therefore, by his own admission, he was not a believer. 
Though again, he would have affirmed a lot of the life and ministry of Jesus, but he just couldn't get past the miraculous. And to give him some credit, at least he was consistent. He denied all of the supernatural. He denied all of the miracles that we find not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. Simply could not come to the place, at least at that point in his life, where he could acknowledge that God would intervene miraculously in history. Regardless of which miracle one starts with, denying one invariably leads to others, and eventually we come to the conclusion that God simply is not capable or is not willing to do the miraculous. And I trust you can see how significant it is when it comes to our salvation and our eternity, which we will get to in just a moment. But if God doesn't do the miraculous because he's unable or unwilling, then we are not saved. We are still in our sins. If there is no virgin birth, then there is no walking on the water or calming of the storm or feeding the 5,000 or healing the sick or raising the dead. And as I've already stated, if there is no virgin birth, then there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means there is no Christianity to call orthodox at all. And I trust you can see as well, a God who cannot do these things is a far cry from the God we claim to know and see in the Bible. Another reason why the belief in the virgin birth does matter, and in fact, it matters greatly. In fact, this is why in often or, uh, ordination context, this question is asked. In fact, you, you probably know that this is the last Sunday to turn in your deacon nomination form. And once those are counted, we send out a questionnaire to those who have been nominated. And on that questionnaire is this question, do you believe in the virgin birth? The reason that question is on there is because the virgin birth is sort of the litmus test to all of the other miraculous things. That is, traditionally, you can ask someone the question about the virgin birth and the physical or bodily resurrection of Christ, and if they affirm both of those things, then they have no problem with all the other miraculous things. But if they doubt one or more of those things or deny one or more of those things, then they tend to deny all of the other miracles as well. And so affirming these two miraculous events likely means that people believe the rest of the miracles in the Bible. So this is another reason why the virgin birth does indeed matter. It is not just a birth narrative that we can take or leave. This is not like the question about when did the wise men come? Was it immediately or several years later? And we can agree to disagree on that. This is essential because it speaks to so much about who God is and what he is capable of doing. Because nothing is impossible for God. Finally, I want us to see that salvation depends upon the virgin birth. You will recall that last week we talked about man, the sinner. And we talked there about how we are all born in sin, something we sometimes call original sin. That's the biblical idea that we are all born with a sin nature because we inherit it from Adam. Adam sinned, plunging humanity into sin. And as a result, through the line of Adam, we have all been born into sin because of that, many believe that the virgin birth was necessary in order that that sin nature not pass to Jesus. He had to be sinless in order to be our substitute. If he had his own sin to atone for, then he could not pay the penalty for your sins on the cross. He would have been dying for his own guilt and for his own sin. So the fact that he did not inherit the sin nature is significant for our own salvation. And as a result, as we already saw earlier, the child to be born to Mary can be called holy, verse 35. 
Right from the moment of conception or the moment of birth, he can be called holy. Furthermore, the virgin birth was a perfect way for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Something like the Trinity that is very difficult for our minds to grasp, but we will look at in the weeks to come. And then thirdly, I would say that this matters for our salvation because it is a reminder that salvation is by grace. This was God working to bring about a plan of redemption. This was not mankind doing something for himself. Now, hear me correctly here. The Bible says many wonderful things about Mary. It talks about her character and about her commitment, that she had, that she had found favor in the eyes of God. But let's be honest. Clearly, there must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of young Jewish girls that would have fallen into the same category at this time of history. And I do not say that to minimize Mary's role in this whole thing. I say that to remind us that this is God at work, bringing about a plan of salvation. Mary, Joseph, or anyone else involved in this narrative are merely actors in God's play. And so the virgin birth reminds us that our salvation is a supernatural work of God, not a man-made effort. It comes from God because mankind is helpless to initiate his own salvation. And this supernatural salvation of God is by grace leading to a great Savior. Look at verse 32 and verse 33 again. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In this ever-changing world, there is a constant, something that will never change. And that constant is that Jesus is on the throne, reigning over his people and his kingdom, and will do so forever. And to that, I want to add one more thing before we close. One more reminder that I want you to be thinking about. Does the virgin birth matter? Meaning, does the fact of the virgin birth really make a difference in my life today? I hope you've seen that it does, that this is not just some abstract theology reserved for a seminary classroom. This is not just theologians splitting hairs because they have nothing better to do. This is an important truth. Do you remember the Old Testament story where I alluded to it earlier where, where Sarah was, was told she was going to give birth even though she was nearly 100 years old and, and she laughed about it? And Do you remember what God said to her then? God said to her, is there anything too hard for God? Now that birth was a miraculous birth, even as I, I've, I've, I've acknowledged all births really are, but it does not rise to the level of the virgin birth. But notice what the angel says. We've looked at it already, but this is what I want to leave you with. Notice what the angel says in verse 37. And notice that it's not a question. It is a statement. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. The virgin birth matters because it proves that all things are possible with God. A reminder that you and I need when our lives are seemingly spinning out of control, when we do not know what the future holds, as we never do, when we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring and we are filled with anxiety and worry and uncertainty, we need to be reminded that the virgin birth matters because it demonstrates to us unquestionably that God is all-powerful and nothing is impossible for him. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God 
of the impossible. That you can take a young Jewish girl, a teenager, and make her the mother of the Son of God through the miraculous means of a Holy Spirit conception and virgin birth. I pray today that we've seen that this is not just a theological point, but this really matters. It matters for our salvation. It matters for, the, for our understanding of the supernatural. It matters for our understanding of who you are and for how you've revealed yourself in Scripture. So I do pray that we would be grateful for the knowledge of this truth and would be able to go from here knowing once again that nothing is impossible with God. If God can bring about the birth of his son through a virgin named Mary, then he can handle what we're going to face this afternoon and what's coming this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.